please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 22 today, 1 Samuel 22. As we start chapter 22, we've got to review a little bit just to make sure we know what's where we are in context here. There's a lot going on in the life of David. David was fleeing for his life from King Saul, a desperate situation for sure. And in chapter 21, we see that when David fled to a town called Nob, a city of priests, he tried to protect himself with a lie to a priest in the tabernacle. He permitted his behavior to endanger the lives of others, which we will see played out in horror today. And he was way too excited about acquiring the very familiar sword of Goliath, which had been stored there. In other words, David's fear had overcome him, and he gave in to sin and unbelief and worldliness. Then we find out that David's plan was to try to find refuge in the Philistine city of Gath. And we should each be exclaiming, what are you thinking? Perhaps this would be a way in David's mind of of, uh, reciting something that we've all heard many times. The enemy of my enemy is now my friend. That could have been what he was hoping but no way. Could David really believe that since Saul is now his enemy as well as the Philistines' enemy, the Philistine king of Gath might be David's friend and give him sanctuary there after he parades into town knowing that the relatives of 200 dead Philistine soldiers that he had to kill in order to secure the wife that he wanted, the the daughter of Saul, that was the bride price, Actually, 100. He doubled it. These men's relatives were in this town. So, if he's thinking that way, there's something wrong, is there not? When a Philistine king is my best hope, I'm in real trouble. That should have been the conclusion he came to at some point, and it looks like he might have after the fact. But look where his fear and desperation and possibly his growing self-pity had actually taken him. When he did parade through that town, the Philistines obviously recognized him. Goliath had grown up there, It's just remarkable that this even ever entered his mind. And they took him under arrest, which is what it means when we read that he was in their hands. And so his only recourse, it seems like, he would just pretend to be insane. Slobbering, talking in languages, who knows what, probably made up right there on on the spot. Well, that worked. The king of Gath replies that he's got too many madmen around there. What are you guys doing bringing him to my place? Let him go. So they just let him go. And then here we start in chapter 22, and it begins with David, who had just escaped who knows what as far as calamity and death, to, to a cave, the cave of Adullam, And here we start to see a remarkable change in David. We might say it's kind of like the David that we used to to know. We see here that he changes from um, operating out of fear and desperation to actually learning again, once again, how to trust Almighty God. Now, as we read this, I'm going to read this chapter in just a second, and as we read it through, um, each of us should be identifying with him. We're meant to do that. 
Um, this is not just a story about a biblical character, and then I'm going to close with Be Like David. This, there's so much more to this. Um, we can identify with having great faith, and then the next second, we're fearful and doing really stupid things. And so God has a lot to say here, and there's also a lot of this scenario that points to the Savior. So if you're able, would you please stand as I'm going to read 1 Samuel 22, which is not that long, from the English Standard Version. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpeth of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet of Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, and son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped 
and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When's the last time you read that story? Well, first, in verses 1 and 2, David manages to escape about 12 miles east of Gath into some very rough country where a series of caves provided needed cover and protection. He chooses the cave of Adullam. And also now in great fear of Saul and what he's trying to do, David's family, you notice, also shows up there. But then all sorts of people begin to show up. A surprising collection described in verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Can you picture this? This is a motley crew of people. We could say the social riffraff, malcontents, and folks in debt and distress. And we should note that in the providence of God, it was Saul's injustice toward David that marked the younger man out as the leader for the fearful in Israel. There's a lot of lessons about that. Let me read that again in case the wet weather has made you a little sleepy. We should note that in the providence of God, it was Saul's injustice towards David that marked the younger man out as the leader for the faithful in Israel. And the next question we need to just ask is how often in history has God called forth leaders for his people by having them suffer persecution at the hands of the ungodly? You don't have to be a history student to realize that has happened over and over and over and over again. We do not know who's going to rise up, who God calls up to lead people in times of great trouble until there's great trouble. And in this case, it's Saul. Well, doesn't this typify the coming Savior? Like David at Adullam, Jesus gathered a band of followers who were also not the power brokers of that society. People described by the Pharisees as tax collectors and sinners. Fishermen. Nothing against fishermen, but they're not exactly the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Peter, James, and John. A tax collector, Matthew. A bunch of people nobody had ever heard about. Nobodies. Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, etc. And a bunch of women, also looked down on by the Pharisees led by the once demon-possessed Mary Magdalene. That's quite a group. See the similarities. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Or consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose 
what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And then he tells us why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's ways are not our ways. For God's glory alone, so that all the earth may know that God alone deserves our worship, deserves our service and gratitude. That is quite a lesson already here in this text. Second thing we see here is we see David making arrangements for his parents. Verses 3 and 4. Taking them to the other side of the Dead Sea. That's where Moab was. Why there? I would secretly like to know how many of you already know the answer to that question. But here we go. David's great-grandmother was Ruth, who was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. Now, we don't know how much difference this made in David's request to the king. I mean, he goes and asks the king, can my parents stay here for safety? But it sure makes connecting the dots very interesting as we see her story, Ruth's story, even more now from the perspective of God's providence and redemptive plan. In the last part of Ruth, at the very end of that short little book, we see the lineage. And if you've read Ruth, you know that David is going to be descended from her. Who else? The Messiah. Yeah, God is very creative. It's wonderful to see his plan for the nations. The king of Moab was disposed to grant David's request, and David left his parents there. If you look at the end of verse 3, you notice something has changed in David's attitude. Let's just look at the whole verse. Verse 3, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Where's his trust turn now? Well, third, and perhaps the most important as we go through this, is David is concerned again to discern and to follow God's will. So when we read verse 5, we see David recognizing God's provision. Provision of what? Provision of whom? Provision of the prophet Gad, who tells him not to remain in the stronghold, but to depart and go back to the land of Judah, where he goes into the forest of Hereth, we find out. Now, we don't know for sure what that stronghold is. If you're interested in such things, people have all sorts of crazy ideas. Not crazy. All sorts of ideas about what that is. A lot of people think it's Masada, what ended up being called Masada, because Masada is on the southwest side of the Dead Sea, and Moab's on the other side, so it'd be somewhere you know that he might have gone to on the way to and from. But also many think it's still referring to the cave, which were known as the strongholds down through history, actually. Several times in Israel's history, uh, people that were under attack used that cave system to hide and get away. So regardless, David heard God's word through this prophet, and he obeyed him. He departed and went into the forest of Hereth and Judah. And what should we get from that? Simple. This is really simple. Ready obedience to God's word is evidence of true and living faith. He immediately obeyed the word of God that came to him through the prophet that God sent there to him, which is evidence of his living faith. 
David's plight is still desperate, but now the silence has been broken and as David turns back to trusting God. You know, I read several guys this, this past week that commented on this in this way. He said, you know, when you're desperate and alone, that's one thing. And it's usually bad. But when you're desperate and there's silence has been broken, what does that do to your heart? There's hope. You're re-energized. You start thinking again. You're not just kind of walking through whatever. Most of us have experienced that in some form or another, how God sends special encouragement through circumstances or people or a phone call or a letter you didn't expect just kind of coming out of nowhere some of you sitting in this room have been that kind of encouragement to the rest of this body God does things like that he knows what's going on with his people he knows what we need he is sufficient in and of himself but in times of desperation when the silence is broken it's a special gift it's cold clear water that quenches your thirst and it is very special when you recognize God's grace working in your heart as you trust him even in those situations and David is in a desperate situation we should pay attention to two psalms there's two psalms that David wrote about this experience Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 both are written by him about fleeing from Saul in the cave, is what it says in the title. Both tell of a renewed commitment to prayer and waiting on the Lord during his refuge in Adullam. In Psalm 57, 2, David writes, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. How can you say that unless you're trusting God again? He knows that he's in God's hands. He doesn't know how this is going to play out immediately, but he does know that he has been anointed to be the next king, even if the king now won't give up his throne and is trying to kill him. That's great encouragement. And then we see in Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Now, you heard the whole chapter as we read it. There's a lot more that's at stake here. We'll get to all that. But why is this so significant? Because God gives David direction, and he gives him special guidance through his prophet. But Saul did not, does not, and would not ever enjoy that privilege again. Do you see the contrast? God sends his word to David. God removed his spirit from Saul. Big contrast. Two men going in different directions. Opposite directions. Now in our text we see that the scene changes and these contrasts that we're talking about that are here throughout this whole book uh, continue. <clears throat> what do we know about Antichrist? No, I'm not crazy. We're not changing the subject. There is a capital A Antichrist, but we also read in 1 John, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that, Antichrist is coming, so now many, many Antichrists have come. Meaning, many Antichrists have already come, who lead up to the capital A Antichrist, who will be revealed at the end. So what is that talking about? Tyrants, somebody who's really opposed to God. Well, John gives us some descriptions of what is true of these people. And anybody that knows even a little history can name the big ones. That people who have already been labeled as the Antichrist, but actually they were just one of the many Antichrists. Everybody following that? One of the main characteristics 
of these antichrists, plural, is false teaching, of course. But another one, the main one, is that these antichrists, plural, enter into conflict with and seek to crush and destroy God's people. That's the main one. They enter into conflict with and seek to crush God's people. So, what is Saul? David is one of God's people, but the Messiah will be descended from him too, which means the target is much bigger on his back. And as you go through the Old Testament and the, and the first part of the Gospels and the, and the New, how many times will it look like God's chosen people would be completely wiped out? Or the people that the Messiah is said to be descended from, their families were almost completely wiped out, and God does what? He saves one or a handful in miraculous circumstances almost to keep what? The remnant alive so his plan of redemption can be carried out to the one he said would carry it out. God wasn't panicking. He was accomplishing what he said he would do. And to realize that, we're going to learn something about that shortly. That should encourage every one of us here today. And because David is one of those people that belongs to God, the target is awfully big on his back. And so we could say, that helps us understand this a little more, that Saul is one of a long line down through history that you could call one of the many antichrists trying to crush God's people and entering into conflict. And you're going, why are they so consumed with, and you fill in the blank, when persecuting God's people, and these days it's God's own, who know God through Jesus Christ. Well, back to Saul. We can best describe verse 6 in the following, and I laughed when I saw this, uh, in one commentary, Saul's royal pity party. Doesn't this just sound like, well, it sounds like a lot of us, that's sad to say, but he seems just, he is consumed with this whole issue. And what does he seem to have permanently attached to his body now through one particular hand that holds it? Several times the last couple of chapters, every time we've seen Saul, or a lot of times we've seen Saul with his spear in his hand. And that just gives you this picture of this uh, person that's lost it and is really consumed about one thing, and you do not know what he's going to do with that spear. We know that several times he tried to take out David when he was still in the court, and he even threw it at his own son, Jonathan. Well, here he is again gathered with his guys and we can sum all this up in verse 8 the last part of verse 8 no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of jesse none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day and nobody nobody could could make this clear how crazy that is including ahimelech who makes a pretty good case at spur of the moment in just a second, doesn't he? He goes on and on to his servants about being undercut and betrayed and in the dark about all the evil being perpetrated against him. Do you know any people like that? Every time you're around them, that kind of filth just spewing out of their mouth. It's all about them. They're consumed, and what would you say is their character? What's their prop? Their attitude is one of complete bitterness. They are enslaved to their own hatred and and just consumption in focusing on something that's not even right. And they mix the facts up and build them out of proportion, and you can't get through to them, can you? Well, that's a picture of, of what's going on here with Saul. 
But what happened from this pity party is that it turns into this raging evil vendetta. Why? Why? Because Doeg, that's Edomite who was there in Nob when David showed up and went to the priest, who was watching everything, he waits. This guy, he knows how to, how to deal with strategy. He waits, let all this pity party go on, and at the right moment, he stood by the servants of Saul, and he said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of, of Goliath, the Philistine. He didn't have to embellish anything. He just said what he saw, which fit right into the conspiracy theory that Saul was nursing. Ahimelech and all his house and all the priests who were at Nob were summoned and accused. And his answer and defense to Saul's accusation is masterful, especially in the face of Saul, whose spear is permanently attached to his throwing arm. But to no avail, verse 14 and 15, we read, Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? And captain or commander of your bodyguard, honored in your house. Remember when David was in the court, had a place to eat on a regular basis right there. Is today, Ahimelech says, the first time that I've inquired of God for him? He says this, is, is that the first time? No done it many times for him. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. So the noble answer that was so full of truth, it was so full of truth that it cut Saul to his core and infuriated him even more, which is what happens when truth hits the heart of people who are dead set against God and they're not going to listen to anything you say. You can say it. Don't put your hope in your argument or the facts. Your hope has to be in the Lord. Ahimelech laid out point by point Saul's unjust malice towards David. But the high priest was condemned since Saul would not repent. And his rage must now attack the source and the mouse peace of the truth who in our day could be you it could be me it could be your child it could be anybody who knows the Lord none of his servants would carry out the execution though wasn't that great at least there's some people with their heads screwed on right they wouldn't carry it out they feared the Lord they would not touch his priest. Only Doeg was left, so the job was his, and he seemed to enjoy it, killing 85 priests and then slaughtering the whole town of Nob. Now, this is not fun to do, but we have got to look at this scene, even if it causes great discomfort. Because we need to understand that we have the need in this scene, as we observe it, to see both the reality of this scenario in the world we live in and also the reason for confidence in the face of the work of such an antichrist like Saul. Did you get that? We need to understand two things. This is the reality of standing for the Lord. It may not reach any of us. It hasn't for several, maybe, generations. But it may be that time again soon. We don't know. The question is not, I don't want that. I'm not going to do that. I'm running. The question is, will we stand for the Lord? Are we helping each other learn how to stand for the Lord if that time comes? Will your children know how to stand for the Lord? Will you encourage them to stand for the Lord if it means this result? Hard, tough questions. This is the reality, though. And the second thing, though, is the reason that we can still be confident in the face 
of such work. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's think about this for a second. It means, first, that the reality for true believers in Christ is that the world will go to any degree to suppress the truth of Jesus Christ. A person or entity or group of people who are united in rebellion against God will get to where Saul had gone. That's just the reality. They'll end up getting there. Because all this tyrant had left was the supposed leverage of physical death. And we go, well, that's, that's the whole point. You're not thinking about this right. In a, it's a physical world, and there's nothing else beyond this physical world for the unbeliever except eternal condemnation and judgment. So sure, that is their ultimate and only real weapon against God's elect. They think it's final. What do they not know? For the believer, it's just the preliminary stage. Eternity is going to be a little bit longer than our lives here, no matter how short the world thinks they may be. Some of the world's most faithful people have died early, way before their time. Their time was God's time. See, that's not the ultimate weapon against God's elect because Christians will live eternally. And we go, well, I know that. Yeah, but the reality is that you may have to face it now. I may have to face it now. Your kids, your grandkids may have to face it now. The second thing this means, the Christian has a sure and fast reason for confidence in the face of the work of the Antichrist like of Saul. Because, as we just said, the end of this life for the one who does belong to Christ is not over at death. So their threat of physical death should not be the ultimate threat for us which is why so many Christian martyrs can actually rejoice in the Lord as they die in persecution. At the Together for the Gospel conference, uh, several of us got to go together this year, and David Platt again scored some, well, it wasn't just his tears that were falling. As he went through a history lesson of, some of it came from Fox's Book of Martyrs, but it didn't just include those people, of how many people that were marching to being burned at the stake were actually praying the same song. And if you had to pick one, what do you think it would be? It wasn't the one that they were praying. This was especially in Scotland. It was Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of what? Confession and repentance. In other words... The point he was getting to was that these people knew that they did not deserve life at all because they were sinners who deserved God's judgment. And because they were saved in Jesus Christ, they could approach the flame and be grateful for what the life they had and the eternal life they were getting ready to go to. And they encouraged that way as they went there, watching their relatives, their wives, their children be thrown in bags filled with bricks into rivers, dying right in front of them, or cut to pieces. And that place, listening to this, of 10,000 people was still, you could have heard a pin drop in the Louisville Cardinal basketball arena. That's the perspective that we've got to entertain and learn to think about correctly, because... If we don't, we will want to hold on to what we think we have, who we are here, and that means our, our, our eyes are not upon who God is and what he has for us. And yes, it will be costly and it will hurt. 
but only for a little while. Our life is not over at death. It's not the end for those of us to face that by the grace in Christ. Death in this life does not mean it's all over and we're through. Our confidence then can remain in the one who saved us because we know we'll spend eternity with him. So a tyrant's threat may be real. We may see more of it now. We are called not to fall apart, not to just put our hope in some political person or some plan or some new theory. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not all about now. In fact, not much of it really is except the preparation for the future so that now people can see who God really is. The bottom line here is that we must not be surprised by or overwhelmed by any worldly threats to our lives, as if there's nothing else. When we do, we are acting just like non-Christians. They will do anything to stop that. We may have avenues to do that correctly, but our hope is not there. How can that be? God's grace. The rebellious and the tyrants will be judged. They will be condemned. That's something else we know. Another twist on this passage is that this brutal and unjust slaughter was prophesied about back in chapter 2, verses 30 through 36, as a judgment on Eli's house. Eli the priest, remember him? This is his descendant. In other words, Doeg's butchery fulfills the word of God against the house of Eli. God prophesied that Eli's house would be wiped out which was spoken 40-something years before this. How can that be? Be careful here. Do not berate the word of God. God is not the author of evil. Place the blame where it belongs on Doeg and Saul. They both are fully responsible. put all this together and this truth comes out and we can't get our heads around it, but it's still true. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. Now, if you get this at all, and if you're growing and getting this, that builds confidence in our lives now. Peter made this crystal clear in his sermon in Acts 2 about Jesus, the greatest example. Remember? Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see both elements there? What about Joseph? This is made clear in Genesis 50, 20, when he confronted his brothers who had sold him into slavery, but now God had used him to save his people from starvation. So when the brothers came back and they realized that this was their brother that they'd sold, they thought he was dead, and it's Joseph... Joseph, and they were scared out of their minds. This guy could, Joseph could snap his fingers and they'd be gone. And what did Joseph do? He looked at him and said, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me. They're guilty. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Dale Ralph Davis bluntly writes this. If we know that as men opposed as men oppose God and his people, 
they will only fulfill God's word. It doesn't take away the sorrow or the grief or the suffering, but it does give us the secret certainty of victory. There is no way the Lord's enemies can gain the edge. Good to hear in an election year. Look, we're not finished with this chapter either. One of Ahimelech's sons, Abiathar, escapes and he fled to David for safety. And David immediately owns up to his previous irresponsibility here in verse 22. This gets deeper and deeper. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. Now remember, this is the only person still living in this whole family priest. He escaped. David tells him, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. In other words, what's he saying? I am responsible for that. David is deeply humbled, and he knows his part in all this. He has learned that we cannot tell what the consequences of our sin might be. And also, that the only true sanctuary is in the Lord as he now is absorbed with the duty for all the people that had come to him for refuge, which is why he wrote in Psalm 57.10, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Isn't that wonderful? He is not making light of what he did. He knows the consequences. It didn't paralyze him forever. He turned to completing what God had called him to do, which is take care of all these people that were finding, going to him for safety and from Saul, actually, along with him. He knows the Lord is the only one he can look to and the only one in whom to trust. Otherwise, he really would be like he was in Gath. That really would be him going crazy with it. I did this. I can't go back. I can't do this. I can't teach my kids. I did that when I was young. How many times do we think like that? A lot. But he doesn't make light of it. Compare what Saul tells Ahimelech in verse 16. If you're looking at your Bibles, this is incredible. With what David just told the Beathar. This is the biggest contrast here. Saul said to Ahimelech, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. David told Abiathar, With me you shall be safe. That's a contrast. Now consider this. Abiathar's escape does not mean because some of us will be tempted to do this, and many churches attract tons of people because they make this a doctrine. Abiathar's escape does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but rather that the world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servants. In other words, another way to say that is the Lord does not promise that we will never die for the kingdom of God. And if you make that your hope and expectation, you will not stand up for him when the time comes. But the Lord does promise that the kingdom of God will never die. And that there will be a remnant in it. We go, please make me the remnant. Please make me the remnant. He might, but he might not. 
Abiathar performed priestly functions for David the rest of his life. Incredible, is it not? And we find out in the next chapter that he brings the ephod, which is a means of discerning the Lord's will. God continues then to providentially care for his king-to-be, David, even as David has to endure life on the run from someone violently opposed to God and utterly committed to crushing God's true people. So now David has, and this is great, David has a priest, a prophet, and a remnant of very needy people following him. He's got Abiathar the priest, Gad the prophet, and all these people. Do we have that need? We need to be defended by a mighty king, to be reconciled to God's favor by an atoning priest, and instructed into faith and salvation by a true prophet. Are you hearing these words? Some of you know that they do go together. Prophet, priest, king. That's Jesus. This is the refuge of God's people in this world. The kingly reign of God's mighty son. That's our hope. He's our hope. The priestly ministry of Christ's sin-atoning blood and the prophetic ministry of the Holy Scriptures. That's where we need to stay. So if we look at each other and say, you'll be okay if you know Christ, eternity's a long time to celebrate that. Until he brings us home, being faithful to him is what should give us joy. Nothing beats the joy of being true to your king. John 16, 33. Would you please stand for this is our benediction. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You're dismissed.